This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. If you've ever been to some of the little fishing villages along the southwest coast of the UK, places like Mausel and Port Isaac, you were probably charmed by the snug harbours, their breakwaters sheltering a small fishing fleet. It's a quintessentially British image of a lifestyle long perceived to be under threat, which is partly why it became such a potent symbol for those like Nigel Farage arguing for the UK to leave the EU. We take back control of our territorial fishing waters, we manage it properly, and it's going to be worth three to five billion pounds every single year to this country. And it's also going to be the regeneration of many of our coastal towns and communities. You can write these people off if you want to. You can say they're irrelevant, but actually, I think, in our hearts, as an island people, this matters. If you enjoyed some fish and chips while you were in one of these villages, you might have been surprised to discover that the fish you were eating probably wasn't caught locally, or even in the UK, but was imported. One of the odd things is that the British export most of what they catch and import most of what they eat. On this Rear Vision, we'll look at the history of the British fishing industry and why it's such a hot-button issue as the Brexit deadline looms. British fishing is currently managed under the European Union's Common Fisheries Policy. The story begins at the end of World War II, with Europe in ruins and people starving. Concern over food security led the fledgling European Economic Community to establish a common agricultural policy, which initially included fish. Dr Jill Wakefield from the School of Law at the University of Warwick. So what was done with agriculture, fisheries simply got caught up in that. And the idea in the 1960s was that fish could be farmed in the same way as the land. And the idea was that resources would regenerate naturally. And so that gave rise to the problem within fisheries that they have always been overexploited. In the 1970s, when Ireland and Denmark and Britain were going to join the European Union, the European Union wanted to get hold of the fishery resources that they would bring with them, because by this stage they'd really fished out their own waters. So they wanted to establish a common fisheries policy prior to those countries joining. And so there was a hastily put together fisheries policy. It wasn't properly thought out, but what it really did was to establish a common market in fish products so that you as a producer of fish would have access to all the countries within the European Union. Britain was happy to abandon its waters to join the EU. The UK didn't really fish in its own waters. It fished in the north. It was interested in the waters around Iceland. It had been since the 14th century. It had always fished north because the British liked cod. And they don't eat much else. They eat cod, cod and chips. It was a staple of the working classes. So they're not much interested in the fish that are in their own waters. But the French were. Because fisheries are so small a part of the economy, of course, the UK did nothing really to protect fisheries. And there were rows over this, over it just being sold, the fishing communities being abandoned. 
During the 1970s, change was coming to the management of fishing rights around the world. Countries were claiming fishing grounds in the lead-up to the establishment of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which would allow exclusive economic zones up to 200 nautical miles from the coast. This had a significant impact on the British fishing industry, which had largely been operating in the waters of other countries. Dr Bryce Stewart is a fisheries expert at the University of York. The UK fishing industry was actually quite different in the 1970s than what it is today. And one of the main reasons for that is it used to have a very large, what was called distant water fleet. And that mainly operated out of the east coast of England and it fished right up basically into the Arctic, particularly around Iceland and those areas where the fishing grounds are very rich. So it's actually mainly fishing in what would now be called the waters of other countries, but doing exceptionally well as a result of that. And actually, during the 1970s, countries started to claim their territorial waters, particularly Iceland, first of all, out just to 50 miles and then eventually to the full 200. And so that started to restrict this distant water fleet very much, and it really declined not as a result of the UK joining the EU, but because of the sort of loss of that distant water fleet and the restrictions that were being placed, particularly by Iceland. Under the EU's common fisheries policy and law of the sea rights, one big exclusive economic zone was created. And so you were allowed, if you were from France, to come up to the UK within 12 miles of the coast and vice versa, the countries could all sort of share each other's fishing grounds up to fairly close to their coasts. And then the other thing really that changed was because there was this one single policy, then the decisions about how to manage the fisheries in terms of how much fish could be caught every year through quotas and also restrictions on fishing gear and things like that, that was made by the European Commission, basically. And then the countries had to sort of work it out amongst themselves as to who got how much of each quota. The fisheries policy allocated each EU member a quota, an amount of fish it was allowed to catch. Yeah, that's right. So in fisheries, you have what's normally called a stock. So this is an area where there's a certain species that generally is reproductively isolated. But this stock can cover a very large area, like, for example, cod throughout the North Sea. The complication with fisheries management is that there's seven different countries around the North Sea. So you've got to manage that stock as one unit, but you've got all these different countries wanting to take some of it. So they've got to cooperate. What happens first is the scientists need to work out what level of fish catch is sustainable? What can we keep doing year on year without affecting the sort of breeding capacity of the stock and its overall productivity? And then the next step is actually to divide that quota up amongst all of the different countries that have a claim to that fishery. And what was done in the 1970s was they came up with this system called relative stability. So they looked at how different countries were fishing and where they were fishing and who was catching what. So, you know, for example, hypothetically, in the North Sea, France got 20% of the cod, Britain got 60%, Denmark got a bit, etc. The problem with that system was it was just based on who was fishing and not necessarily where the fish were. And this is where the arguments now lie, because 
the UK in particular thinks that it got a raw deal and that other countries are sort of claiming more of the British share of the fish than they should be. It was up to national governments to share out their quota among those who wished to fish. In the UK, it's ultimately produced an industry where much of the quota is taken by a handful of boats based in Scotland, while a larger number of smaller vessels that stay closer to shore catch shellfish, which despite their name aren't actually fish and aren't covered by the quota system. Hazel Curtis is the Director of Corporate Relations at Seafish, an industry support body. In Scotland, you've got the very big boat, 70 to 80 metres long, catching mackerel and herring and those oil-rich fish, small number of those big boats. Um, you've also got quite a lot of small boats around the coast, especially the west coast of Scotland, maybe catching things like Norway lobster, crabs, lobsters and so on. And also in Scotland, you've got medium-sized boats, maybe 20 to 30 metres catching all the lovely whitefish that the British people like so much. And again, those Norway lobsters, bigger ones off in the North Sea. So that would be the, the Scottish industry in a snapshot. And then in England, although you've got some of those bigger whitefish boats in the southwest, England's very much more focused on the smaller inshore boats, catching a lot of shellfish species, and then some of the really high-value flatfish, primefish species in the English Channel. Wales is very um, small catching sector, a small number of quite small boats on the on the whole. And in Northern Ireland, again, a mix one or two of the very large boats, but again, mostly smaller to medium size. Entitlements that the UK government originally handed out for nothing can now be leased or sold for millions of pounds. 13 companies now hold 60% of British fishing rights. So you have a number of large companies owning huge proportions of the quota. And so you have a situation now where the majority of fishing boats in the UK are, are under 10 metres, so under 30 feet long, and almost none of them have any quota at all. So they are fishing for what's called the non-quota species. So these are things like shellfish mainly, so crabs and lobsters, scallops, whelks, this sort of thing, that are not actually managed through the common fisheries policy, and so they, yeah, they're not under this quota system. And those boats, therefore, don't have a way into the, the quota market, if you like. So they're not allowed to catch any fish. And so it's something like 75% of the boats are, are those small boats, and they have less than 5% of the quota. So it's, it's a really quite unbalanced system. And again, this was not really intentional, but it's just the way, I guess, often things work out when you have an open market for something that it gets consolidated and, and it goes to the highest bidder. Despite the fact that the British government could allocate the quota, it discovered that it couldn't ensure that the fish were caught by British fishermen, especially after it allowed quotas to be bought and sold. Yes, yeah, so again, this is another complexity and it has been through the courts. The British government can say that the fishing quota units have to be held against the license of a UK registered fishing boat, but they can't say anything about the nationality of the person that owns the boat or owns the business that owns the boat. So the 
the government is attempting to say that the national resource of fishing quota that is held by the UK should give economic benefit to the UK. They want it to be landed in the UK, processed in the UK. But under EU law, you can't say anything about the nationality of the person or the home residence of the person. So there are economic link rules which try to say the crew must be based in the UK and so on and so forth. Various different rules to make sure that some of the benefit of that fishing quota ends up in the UK. And you can imagine people argue about whether that's strong enough or not. You're listening to Rio Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. As Britain speeds towards the European Union exit door, we're looking at the UK fishing industry and how it became and remains key to Brexit. The court case Hazel Curtis refers to, the Factor Tame case, played out in the 1990s. In 1988, the British government introduced legislation requiring ships to have majority British ownership if they were to be registered in the UK and catch British quota. Spanish fishermen took a case to the EU's European Court of Justice, which ruled that this legislation broke EU law. The effect of that was that its own legislation adopted by Parliament in exercise of its sovereign rights was negated by a ruling from the Court of Justice of the European Union. And that's what's festered, particularly within the Conservative Party of the UK. And it's like a saw that they keep going back to. So they've got the two grievances. The first, the creation of the common fisheries policy in the first place when we joined. And the second, the Factotain case, where the constitution of the UK really was rewritten. It was amended by the Court of Justice of the European Union because parliamentary law was no longer sovereign. And under our unwritten constitution, the UK Parliament can make or unmake any law it likes, and it's not subject to anyone else. The laws of the UK became subject to EU law scrutiny through its Court of Justice, and that has been the row over sovereignty, which has really fueled the traditional Brexiteers. It's the constitutional point that Britain had an unwritten constitution which gave Parliament sovereignty, absolute sovereignty, and Court of Justice, once it does that, it undermines this concept of parliamentary sovereignty, and that's what annoys them. They don't care that it's fish or anything, but this idea of undermining parliamentary sovereignty is what got to the Conservative Party. You know, it started there, And that's the animosity felt towards the Court of Justice of the European Union and the determination that the European Court of Justice should not have precedence over the UK, that it shouldn't be involved in any dispute resolutions now that we're out of the EU. England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland all have their own quotas, each with different degrees of foreign ownership. While Scotland's quota is largely owned by locals, more than half of England's is owned by companies based in Iceland, Spain and the Netherlands.
One of the fascinating peculiarities of this story is the fact that fishing contributes a tiny amount to British GDP. Yes, I think fishing is wrapped up in our national identity to some extent as a seafaring nation, which is a centuries-old part of the identity of Britain, if you like. And as soon as you start to think about geopolitics and you look at a map, and these days it's easy to find a map showing the sea area that would be classed as UK waters with that 200-mile limit or the midpoint for closer neighbours. As soon as you look at that, you see territory, and that really appeals to humans. Some idea of this is our territory, we can be self-sufficient, we can feed ourselves. For me, that seems like quite an instinctive part of human existence. So there's that idea of being able to look after ourselves and having the access to the wealth of the territory that's ours, whether that's land or sea. So you're absolutely right. Fishing and seafood processing and so on makes up a very small proportion of the British gross domestic product. It would be seen as less than half of 1% of the UK economy, but it takes up way more than that percent of airtime when it comes to discussing Brexit. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, fisheries has become quite iconic. It's the poster child of Brexit, among Brexiteers anyway. I think because it's something that's easily identifiable, I think there is a a case that the UK got a bit of a bad deal when it joined Europe. But it goes sort of deeper than that as well. You know, the UK is an island nation with a long nautical history. You know, the heroes are nautical figures. Fish and ships is the national dish. And so there's a real maritime identity here. And fish, because they are a public resource, even though now they're kind of not really owned, but people believe they are. All of those factors have combined to make it a big issue. And that's really snowballed. And so who can forget the flotilla on the Thames just before the referendum vote when, you know, all these fishing boats sort of steamed up past Parliament House and we had Nigel Farage and Bob Geldof trading insults across the water and all this sort of thing. I mean, it was extraordinary. Nigel, Nigel, you're a fraud. Britain makes more money than any other country in Europe from fishing. Britain has the second largest quota for fish in Europe after Denmark. Three. Britain has the third largest landing. You're a fraud, Nigel. Millionaires, millionaires just love it in the EU. What about working seamen? Not one sailor on your boat. When it came to the vote on Brexit in 2016, the UK fishing industry was divided. I would say just talking to people as I do for my job and, you know, looking all the chat groups on Twitter and social media and so on, I would say a very large majority, probably well over 90% of people involved in the catching sector were in favour of Brexit. And that was the case even in Scotland, where the population and the government were not in favour of Brexit, um, but the fish catching sector was. So they were completely optimistic that as long as they had the fishing rights, they would find a market for the fish and there would be some people to process the fish. 
And then certainly some of the larger fish processing companies, those firms exporting might have been a bit more cautious. So for instance, around the Grimsby and Humber area in England, on the east coast of England, there's a lot of uh, larger companies there, a lot of international trade and processing, and some of them have been concerned about the implications. We are ready to consider an agreement on fisheries, but it must reflect the fact that the UK will be an independent coastal state at the end of this year, 2020, controlling our own waters, and under such an agreement, there will be annual negotiations with the EU using the latest scientific data, ensuring that British fishing grounds are first and foremost for British boats. Prime Minister Boris Johnson making a commitment on Britain's fishing future. Both sides have dug in their heels during Brexit negotiations. Currently, EU boats are entitled to more than 60% of overall landings by weight from the seas around the UK. So the EU is under enormous pressure from its fishing communities to maintain the status quo. We're in the transition period at the moment with the EU. So whilst we're not in the EU at present, we're trading with the EU on the same basis as other members. But from next year, that won't be the case. And we'll be trading with the EU based on whatever arrangements the government makes. Now, the EU has been suggesting that the trade arrangements, tariffs and what have you, should all be in one package along with fishing rights. And the EU's starting position is that, okay, we've got the situation we had under the common fisheries policy. That's our starting point. And we want to wrap fishing together with trade. And the British government is saying, no, I think you'll find that these are our waters. The starting point for negotiation is that these are our waters. And if you want to come into our waters, you have to let us into your waters. And the British government is also saying the trade deal will be separate from any deal related to fishing. So that may mean that we have all the fish to catch in our own waters, but not a very favorable trade deal to export those fish to the EU. And then, of course, the government would say, but there is the whole world. The EU is not the only customer for our fabulous seafood. But there you go. You're right into the politics there. If there's no deal on fish, there are risks for those who catch fish as well as fish processors. The UK exports around 80% of the seafood it lands, most of it to the EU. After Brexit, the UK could catch plenty of fish but have nowhere to sell it. What is of concern, and this is particularly to the majority of the British fishing industry, which are those small boats fishing for shellfish, is the effects on trade. And so at the moment, the EU is by far the most important trade partner, particularly for seafood. So something like about two-thirds of what is caught here is actually exported to Europe. But in the case of those shellfish, it is often more than that. Sometimes it can be 85, 90% of it, things like live lobster and prawns, scallops, for example. And at the moment, we've got frictionless rapid trade so that a lobster caught off Cornwall can actually be sent to Spain and still alive. It'll be there the next day. But if we have no deal, then we'll have two things. We'll have tariffs, so extra costs 
if it goes back to World Trade Organization rules, they could be over 20%. But what people are more worried about are these non-tariff barriers. And so this is basically extra regulations, extra paperwork. You know, you need to get a VET certificate. You need to fill out catch certificates in advance and all this sort of stuff. So up to like five or six different forms will be needed. And all of this will delay the export of these products, which at the moment get a very good price because they're fresh or alive. But if they get held up at the borders, instead of being 24 hours from the sea to plate, you know, it, it might be a week. And therefore, the price of those products will be dramatically affected. And that is what actually most fishermen are worried about. And it's a bit of a reality check, particularly since we've had the effects of coronavirus, which have dried up international trade quite dramatically. And they've really illustrated the importance of that export market. In the early sort of days of, of the coronavirus restrictions, many of the fishing boats around the UK had to tie up because they basically couldn't sell their products. And it's really exposed how important that export market is. At the end of this year, the UK will become an independent coastal state, operating under the UN law of the sea rather than the EU's common fisheries policy. It will join the other non-EU countries fishing in its region, Iceland, Norway and the Faroe Islands. Bryce Stewart says this increases the risk of overfishing. You know, my concern as a scientist is that that is what will happen. And you'll have the UK saying, OK, we are entitled to, say, 80% of the cod in the North Sea on the basis of where the fish are distributed, hypothetically. And at the moment, if other European countries go, well, at the moment they're taking 40%, then suddenly you've got a system where 120% of the quota that's recommended by scientists is being taken. And that means that the fish stock begins to get overfished. In the long run, that's no good for anyone. Obviously, you know, you run down the stock, its ability to breed gets affected, and then future yields go down. And this is not just hypothetical. This has happened in a number of cases and recently. So there's a, a situation called the Mackerel Wars, which is Basically the same thing, down to a dispute between, in that case, the EU, Iceland and Norway and the Faroes. And there's arguments over exactly where the mackerel are. And so some of the northern countries, particularly Iceland, have said the mackerel, because of climate change, have moved more into their waters. And so they have unilaterally increased the amount that they're catching. But, of course, the EU has disagreed with that and not reduced in response. And so you've had a situation where basically too many fish are being caught. And this is the worry, because in the waters around the UK, you have something like 100 different fish stocks that are shared with other European countries. And so there's potential for things to go very wrong if there's not that sort of cooperation, if there's those sort of unilateral decisions. And this is why it's really important that we do get a proper agreement on fisheries. Hazel Curtis says that despite COVID, she remains optimistic about Britain's fishing future. All sorts of things could happen, really. There's a likelihood that we will reach some kind of amicable agreement with the EU. There might be tensions for a few years till things settle down again. I would expect that the 
people exporting seafood from the UK are going to get more adventurous, more ambitious, and frankly, better at selling British seafood to other parts of the world. So trade shows in China and Japan, and the Middle East, the US, I expect there's just going to be much more global effort there. I think people will branch out, um, make the best of it, be optimistic. That seems to be the mood, if you like. Hazel Curtis, the Director of Corporate Relations at Seafish, an industry support body in the UK. The other guests were Dr Bryce Stewart, a marine ecologist and fisheries biologist at the University of York, and Dr Jill Wakefield from the School of Law at the University of Warwick. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.